have origin stories or places where we begin that begin with me. The problem in that is what happens if I'm broken or I'm wrong? See, if our origin begins with a God who steps back and says, let it be, and then does nothing, what happens when everything falls apart? Where is God then? Oftentimes we talk about creation versus evolution in a very logical sense. But rarely do we stop to think in a theological sense. How does this argument change who God is or what God says about me? Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. For those of you who I've had the pleasure of meeting before, and for those of you who I have not, my name is Adam, and I am the pastor here at The Point. I have to tell you, growing up, I was blessed with many positive male influences in my life. I don't know about your past, but these men greatly shaped the way I think, the way I act, the way I live in this world. Even though two of these male influences are men that I never met in person. Maybe you were shaped by them as well. The first always wore a red sweater vest and taught me that anybody could be my friend if only I wanted them to be my neighbor. And it changed my world. In fact, anyone who knows me knows that I don't think there's any stranger in the world, just friends I haven't yet met. And I probably owe a lot of that to him. The other, however, was a little bit different of a man, equally positive and equally joyful. He had big hair and he loved to paint. Maybe you know him as Bob Ross. Anybody grow up watching Bob Ross? Like I could watch him for hours and hours. It was so relaxing. And I know his whole thing was like, let me teach you how to paint, but I didn't care to do it myself. I just wanted to watch. And every time he messed up, he'd just say, here's a happy little accident or a happy little tree. And he just took his mistakes and made them into something purposeful. And I love that idea, just happy little accidents. Like, what if we went through life and everything that happened, whether it was good or bad, we found a way to take that thing that happened and turn it into something positive or something different? As a kid, I loved both of these two men, and I loved to watch them for hours. As an adult, though, I came to realize there's a reason both of them were so powerful in my youth. The first taught me that the whole world can be friendly if only we initiate being friendly first. And while this is not always true, you probably know some people reject even the friendliest of person. It's certainly a helpful outlook in life to begin. The second, Bob Ross, he taught me that even my mistakes are not mistakes if I can redeem them and use them in some new way. And as I grew up, I realized 
that most of this world we live in has neither of those two attitudes. In fact, for most of us, there's a whole lot of stranger danger and fear of the other because generally other people have hurt us. And so we withdraw and become friends only to those who will first befriend us. Only to those who fit the mold we want them to fit. Or we look at all of our accidents and our mistakes and the things that happen and we become defined by those accidents and by those mistakes. And we become what we've strived so hard not to be, an accident in ourselves. Now, I think few of us would actively say that we believe that we are accidental. But when we really dive down deep, I think for many of us, the idea of purpose and order and creation as something that was meaningful and redeemable is not how we live and how we think and how we feel. Last week I shared a little bit of, of history with you. This week I'm going to share a different kind of history with you. As we're in this series of unmaking, learning to unmake the things we have believed that are perhaps a hindrance to experiencing God in our everyday lives. As we're learning to do this, a little bit of history helps. Now, I have to just begin with some clarity. Today, we're gonna talk about the history of our beliefs on where we come from. And I know anytime we talk about where we come from, oftentimes people immediately build up walls and defensiveness like, oh no, here goes, this guy's going to reject all of this science or all of this thought or I'm not going there today, all right? In fact, when it comes to the history of where we come from, there's a significant value to be added to looking at science and the things we can know through observation. But we don't have time to dive into all of that right now. So I just want to ask you if you have a lot of questions about that sort of where do we come from, please ask them and know we may get to them today, we may get to them in future days, but they're worth asking. Today as we talk about the history of where we come from, I want to share a different perspective that focuses less on the science versus religion and more on God. What has God said and done and why does it matter for us today? You see, for most of history, in fact, almost all of history, every culture has had an origin story that meant something significant to them. A story of their beginning, how they came to be, that changed how they lived today. If you read origin stories and creation stories of the ancient Middle East, you see there's similarities where there's stories of great floods and God interacting with creation in great and powerful ways. There are stories in China even of great floods that are very similar to stories in Egypt and Israel and our ancient modern Western world. Creation and where we come from shapes where we're headed. But all of this changed for you and I in the Western world in the 1800s. Maybe you're familiar with a guy named Charles Darwin. In 1859, Charles Darwin, he published a book that was called The Origin of Species. And in that book, he hypothesized perhaps we all come from nowhere and somehow we happen to be where we are today. And perhaps through a whole series of long changes that took a lot of time, we eventually evolved into this state of being. 
Now this theory of Charles Darwin was one that was widely embraced in the West. And it was widely embraced not instantaneously, but over time. In fact, still to this day, I would say for most Americans today and most Westerners, which includes Europe and, and a lot of this Western world, a lot of us believe evolution is fact. And here's a little bit of why. See, evolution offers a solution for our origin without God. For those of us who are mad at God or uncomfortable with God or simply don't really like the idea of some other power, this feels like progress. Why do we need to be hindered by religion or by God or these things when we can simply study the facts and know what's true? Now, a little with this history of evolution, I don't know if you know this, but Charles Darwin himself, by the end of his life, actually said, my theory is clearly not correct. And he rejected his own theory that many of us today embrace as normative. This theory, over the course of about 70 years, slowly grew in the American and Western psyche and began to take root, so much so that in 1925, our very own state of Tennessee passed a law, and in that law, it made it illegal to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible. And so in 1925, there was a man named John Scopes in Dayton, Tennessee. Maybe you're familiar with him or with Dayton. And he was teaching in public schools this theory of evolution, and he went to court and he lost and was fined a whopping fee of $100 for teaching this theory that breaks the law. Now, two years later, on a technicality, the charges were dismissed and everything dropped. But that marked the beginning of a battle in this country for our public school system, in which in the 1960s, in fact, 1968, the Supreme Court made it illegal to prohibit the teaching of evolution in our public schools. And up until the late 80s and early 90s, there was a balance where you have to equally teach creation and evolution as both scientific approaches to our origin story. You might think, why does any of this matter, Adam? Well, it's really, really significant for those of us who believe in God. Not because I think we need to get into a fight with the public school system or the government or we need to retake this country or any of that. No, it's really significant for us because this slow transformation in our culture to believing our origin comes less and less from a purposeful, intentional creator and more and more to an accidental mistake of nature has actually changed the way we view our lives today, whether we realize it or not. For many of us, our lives feel aimless and purposeless. What am I doing at this job I hate that I keep going to every single day so that I can pay the bills I don't really wanna have, so that I can have the things I was told I need to have in order to live a happy life? How do I fulfill this reason God has given me to live? Is there a reason at all for life? This slow introduction of a godless origin and beginning has even transformed our culture to the point where there is no structure or truth or authority outside of myself. Which means who are you to tell me what I think or what I believe or what I'm doing 
is wrong. But I can't blame evolution for where we are today and this idea that our origin was an accident because it didn't start there. So I'm, I'm gonna back up a little bit further. Last week I talked about 1517, a moment in history that changed everything. For those of you who are here or who remember in 1517, there was a moment where a pastor in a church was struck with this reality that the church was really broken and teaching things that were really contrary to scripture. And he began to challenge the church and said, guys, maybe we shouldn't teach these things. We should go back to what the Bible says. And the church didn't really like it. And despite the attempts of the Pope at the time, who was the leader of the church, and not only the church, most of the political world, despite his attempts to kill this man, Martin Luther, Martin Luther's ideas sparked what's known as the Reformation. And the reason I back up to 1517 is in that time, prior to that time, for almost 1,200 years, the church was the central authority in the world. Whatever the church said was true. And therefore, if the church speaks about God, it must be true about God. I don't know how many of you have ever taken time to examine the churches here in Knoxville, but if whatever we, the church, spoke was always true and without error, I'd be really, really concerned. Because sometimes the church says and does things that are completely contrary to the God of Scripture. And I don't know that I want to be a man who follows after the church as much as a man who follows after Christ, because he's really different. And Martin Luther's uh, challenge to the authority of the church opened the doors for a whole slew of people challenging a whole host of authorities. And so in the 1600s, in fact, 1637 comes a man named Rene Descartes. Anybody ever heard of him? He has a famous mantra, he said. He was wrestling with how do I know what is real and what is fake? Do I even exist or am I a figment of somebody else's imagination? Really profound things to be thinking about at 10.30 in the morning, right? And Rene Descartes, in part of his wrestling, came across this phrase. Well, I think, therefore I am. Essentially, he said, because I'm able to think about whether or not I exist, I must actually exist. And this sounds like a very small change in the origin story, but it is a significant change that has shaped your life and my life in every way possible. See, his simple phrase, I think, therefore I am, no longer was the church the authority, and even before that, or more than that, no longer was God the authority for what is true, but mankind was. I am, specifically. His very own being was enough to say, because I am, therefore whatever I think or say or do must be good. And this sparked what is known as the Enlightenment, a period of the world opening their eyes to what could it look like if we lived without God at the center of our beginning? Is there a chance for this to thrive? Now, not every Enlightenment thinker was against God. They weren't all atheists, but the God they believed in was not always a God who created or like Scripture teaches us, a God who created and continues to care for this world. In fact, in the 1700s, uh, several new philosophers uh, came along, like John Locke, 
like Thomas Jefferson, people perhaps you've heard of, who took this a little bit further and said, if we, the individual, are the source of authority, what would it look like for we, the individual, to give up a little tiny bit of authority for the sake of the people? And democracy was born. And out of this came this idea that we can give a portion of our authority so long as we want to, to others who can operate on our behalf, but only until we decide we don't want them to anymore. Now, contrary to popular belief, Thomas Jefferson was neither a Christian nor an atheist. He was, by his own definition, a deist. He believed God existed, and he even believed God was creator. But in his view of God as creator, God created the world and then sat back, washed his hands clean, and said, okay, now let it happen. Maybe you've heard people with that view of God today. They go, well, God created everything and now he just lets it do its thing. And so the means by which he created was evolution or was this or was that. And then God just lets it be and does his thing and he's not actively involved any longer. That is not an origin story I want to believe in. And I hope that's not an origin story you want to believe in either. You see, if we have origin stories or places where we begin that begin with me, the problem in that is what happens if I'm broken or I'm wrong? See, if our origin begins with a God who steps back and says, let it be, and then does nothing, what happens when everything falls apart? Where is God then? Oftentimes we talk about creation versus evolution in a very logical sense. But rarely do we stop to think in a theological sense. How does this argument change who God is or what God says about me? See, some of the problems with an origin story placed in ourselves, when it's all about me and what I think and what I feel and what I want, Rarely do we stop and reflect on what actually is. Like, did you know there are some things that just are, whether we like it or not? I mean, if you went up on the roof today and decided gravity no longer exists and you decided you wanted to fly and you jumped off the roof, would you succeed? Very, very unlikely. My whole world would be turned completely upside down if you did. Because simply what is is gravity. It will be whether we like it or not. And there is truth in this world and beauty in this world and things that we should aspire to and things we should run from that if we don't have an authority outside of ourselves, we have no reason to think about those things. No reason to care about what simply is or is not. And instead, everything is whatever I want it to be, and I can change anything because everything, after all, is just an accident. And accidents have no purpose or meaning. And so if our origin story is centered in me and has no God at the middle of it, if it comes from a place of everything just happened and we just have to live with it, then there is no reason to change anything because this is the way it's supposed to be anyway. And what we end up becoming is we end up becoming people who come from no one in order to be no one for the sake of no one. 
This is incredibly lonely. When our whole world is centered in what's next for me, why get out of bed in the morning? Because sleep sounds really lovely. Why go to work for a boss you don't like, doing a task you can't stand, when none of it helps me? As we need to unmake what this world has taught to us, part of our unmaking needs to be this idea that we are self-made. Like how many of you have heard that? If, if it's all about me, all I need to do to change my life is just pull myself up by my bootstraps and try a little harder and make myself new. In fact, the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry every year, and yet it seems we never seem to actually be helped, and we find ourselves hurting even more. You and I need a God who has created, who cares, who is involved, because it changes everything for us. See, if everything happened by accident, nothing matters, and everything can be changed. The very family unit God has given to us, we can throw away because it doesn't matter after all. If our wife or our spouse or whoever, if they make us mad, we can move on and find a newer, younger model, and things will be perfect elsewhere. If you've ever been in multiple marriages, you know the next one isn't any more perfect than the first one. They're both filled with brokenness. Everything can be changed and we can see that all meaning and truth is lost. So what do we do to unmake this belief we've been taught and that we have held so dear whether we know it or not? Well, let's open up to Psalm chapter 139, the psalm we saw on the screen earlier. This is on page 655 if you're using the blue Bibles and the pews in front of you or if you're upstairs, they're along the wall. Psalm 139. And this is a song of David that David writes to God, a song of praise. This is what he says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. See, you and I are not accidental. You don't just happen to be because it worked out that way. You and I were created on purpose for a purpose. He says, look, God, you've searched me. You've known me. You know everything about me. And this is an incredibly scary truth. See, I know there are things about me that are less than lovable and I wish nobody knew or ever saw. David, he certainly had things about him that were not pleasant and good. In fact, he had multiple wives and he was a rapist and he had murdered a man so that he could marry that man's wife whom he had already impregnated. David was certainly not a good man. He says, God, you have searched me and you know me. Everything about me. When we have a creator who has made us, there is no need to hide who we are. If we are broken, 
if we are messy, if we are sinful, there is no need to hide it because this creator is not surprised by it. He's not disappointed in it. He doesn't look at you with shame and guilt and go, how come you did this? Because he made you and he knows you better than even you know yourself. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. If we happened by accident, if our story starts with just everything coming to be with no one who cared or created, not only is our accident a mess we can't change and fix, but we are alone in this mess. If everything came to be without a God who cares, there's no one who can be there to care today. David, he writes, he says, not only do you know me, God, but wherever I go, however far I try to run, there you are too. This can also be a really terrifying thing. If we're trying to run because we know what we've done wrong, we don't want the one who might find us doing something wrong to be there with us. But the opposite is equally true. If we run because we feel alone and we wonder, God, where are you? And we look at our mess and say, surely I'm not lovable. And this God sees and knows all of it and still commits to being with you wherever you are. What comfort, what peace, what hope we can have. You are not too far gone from a God who loves you. Your mess isn't too big to clean up because he created you. In fact, David continues, he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, you saw or your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David said, look God, because you created me in the very fabric of my mother's room, you knew every detail of who I was before I ever came to be, of who I would be before any of those mistakes defined me. You knew all of that as the source of my beginning and my life and my strength. Because of this, we have hope. He continues in verse 17. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. If you and I came from nothing... We will always be one more little bit of nothing. 
If we came from a God who created us with purpose and meaning and love and compassion, we will always be people who were given purpose and love and compassion. Look, he knows everything about you, even the things you don't want anyone to know. And yet he declares he's with you always. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Because you are not an accident, because you are not a mistake, there is a God who thinks about you more than the sands of the sea. Imagine all the sands in all the world, and he knows more about you than that. How precious are his thoughts in a world that has a lot of thoughts of their own. Thoughts that tell you you just have to work harder to fix your mess and then you'll be lovable. In a world that tells you you just have to be better and then it'll be okay. How precious are his thoughts that look at you, not for what you will be, not for what you are, but simply for who he made you to be. He says, you are mine. My child whom I love, whom I formed in your mother's womb, you are given purpose and meaning and life. You and I need to undo and unmake this long history of thinking it's all about me and begin to see this world not from an accidental mistake perspective, but from a purposeful God who made you to be far more than you ever knew you could be, who knows all your mistakes and says, come exactly as you are and become someone brand new you never knew you could be. Come and see my wonderful thoughts that I see you as my child whom I love and not as one whom I hate or am mad at. Come and be given life in me. The reason we must believe in a creator as the beginning of all of our origin is it's only this one who created everything who can enter into this world and take on flesh, who can become for you and me everything that we are not in ourselves, who in his perfection can lay down his life that we can truly live. And it's only in this God who created that we can be remade into a whole new image. In fact, we're gonna flip all the way back to Genesis and end here. In the very beginning, before sin ever entered in, before brokenness was ever known by the people of God, in that time when God made all things, this is what it says about you and me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. For those of you who read that and are a little bit concerned, it can also equally be read. For, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, referring to all of mankind. You are not an accident, but you were made in the image of God. Picture that for a minute. A God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, who is all-present in all places, 
In this image, you were made and given a purpose to have dominion over the whole earth. Not in an oppressive power that you can destroy and do whatever you please, but like God, to join in caring for this earth and for one another in the same way that he does. You were not made on accident, but for a purpose. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You and I are not accidental, but we're made in God's image and then we were blessed by him to be fruitful. So that as we wake up each morning and we find ourselves tired by the work that is before us, We can give thanks and say, God, today this work is not about me. It's about you. Do with it as you please. And we can go about our jobs, whether it's at our job and where we get paid or our job as a parent or our job as a husband, whatever that task before us is. We can go about it not looking for all the the happy little accidents that need to be redeemed, but all the moments where God is still speaking and moving and recreating someone and something new. And we can be filled with joy and hope and life, whatever tomorrow brings. You are not an accident. You're not a mistake. You were given great purpose. It's my hope and my prayer that this will be the life you find today and every day in Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, you created us in your image, and yet we have turned that creation into the creator. We worship what we can see and what we can feel, and we forget the God who made us. We live as if all of this life is accidental and meaningless, as if there's no purpose and nothing true or beautiful that is lasting and permanent. Give us eyes to see your hands at work. Give us eyes to see your presence with us in all places and in all times. When we run from you, may we know that you are with us. When we hide from you, may we be found by you. Teach us today to live as created people, made in your image to love and to serve, to be blessed and to bless to join in your work of having dominion over all of this earth, providing for and caring for this creation as you do. Help us today to let go of ourself, to become less about me and all about you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're holding that budget meeting in large part because we believe the best way to be faithful with what God has given us through you is to have transparency. So come with all of your questions and the things you're wondering about. We would love to help you uh, feel more excited about what God's doing in this place and through this place. Every week we invite questions and I do my best to respond to them. So Tyler, uh, what questions came in today? Yeah, well, we have a handful here today. So... uh... The first question says, after I pray to God and ask forgiveness for my sins and I keep on doing those sins over and over again, how do I break the cycle? Yes. Um, First, 
This is part of why we need to hear that we're forgiven over and over again. When I got married, I said, I love you to my wife. If that was the last time I ever heard from her, I love you, after many fights and arguments and discussions and times where I blew it, I would wonder, does she still love me? And so if you, like me, continue to sin even though you have asked for forgiveness, we need to keep coming back to God saying, God, here I am. Again, I need to hear that I am forgiven. So first, I would say one of the best things you can do to try to break habits of sin that continue to persist is be involved in a community of people who will forgive you for that sin over and over and over again. And not in a way that enables you to keep doing it. So I don't mean like you're forgiven, here have another, but rather more like you're forgiven, how can I help you in this journey? And know that this side of Christ's return or uh, eternal life, we won't ever get it right. None of us will ever be perfect. We will all have something we do regularly that is sinful. So start with a community of people who are gracious enough to forgive you over and over again, who love you enough to call you out for your sin and not just let you keep doing it. And then also begin in that community of people perhaps finding uh, some accountability, somebody who can ask you before you're struggling, how are you doing? How can I help? What do you need um, in this journey? So that's my suggestion. Cool. The next question is, could we possibly have more cowbell? Yes. Someone asked for. Yes. And I'm playing drums, so I'm going to say no. I'll work on that. Personally. As long as I'm If you play drums and would like to have more cowbell, we'd love to let Tyler play guitar from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, come on. You can use it. I don't want to. But... Thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> I appreciate the input. Um, the next question, we are created for a reason, but how do we go about finding the reason we're created? How do we go about living the purpose in why we were created? This is a really loaded question I can't fully answer in 30 seconds, so I'll briefly say this. Just take a look around you at what you're already doing. Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you have neighbors? Do you have coworkers or a boss or people in your world that you have any kind of relationship for or with? I would say that part of your purpose is to show the love of God to them, to faithfully do that job in that relationship to the best of your ability. And so maybe you start as you're searching for what is my purpose with how can I be a better husband or a better wife or a better friend? or a better son, or a better daughter, or a better mom, or dad. Start in the very relationships God has given you. And then out of that, I would say, find some people who are wise, who have been walking with the Lord for a while, and begin to ask from them, what do you see in me that maybe I've been blind to? What is God doing that you've been observing that I could use some encouragement in? Every one of us needs encouragement from another. So if you want to find your purpose, I say start with the relationships you have and see how you can love them better and then find somebody or a group of somebodies who can begin to speak encouragement and wisdom into your life. Nice. Well, the next question is, while organ music is for some the quintessential Sunday sound, for me, the sound is church bells. Why do some churches have bells and others do not? Do we have bells? I'm curious to know this. Do we have bells? 
I don't know. We do not have bells, but St. John's next door does. So if you stick around long enough, you hear hear their bells from time to time. Um, It's a really good question. Why do some churches have bells and some don't? I could stand up here and pontificate a made-up answer, but instead what I will say is uh, I will leave this for point leftovers, for questions that I'm like, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll do a little bit of research. I encourage you to do some too. And I will try later this week on our Facebook page to share a brief video with a further response of like, this is what I found. So watch for that at uh, Facebook, The Point Knox. It might be good too to clarify, do we mean like handbells, like the little handbell thing? Or do we mean like the bell like up on the building? Like, I don't know. And for clarity's sake, we have neither in this place, okay? Feel free to text. You mean the bell on the steeple? Okay, or even why do you have a steeple? That's a good question too. Uh, we have neither of those in this place. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah. Fun thing is the church is the people and not the building that we inhabit. Go on. Why do Lutherans baptize infants? That's a great Oh, hold on. There's more to it. Okay. Why, why do Lutherans baptize infants? What does that baptism mean for someone who later rejects Christ? Those are great questions. The really short answer that I could and at some point should go much more in depth with, why do we baptize babies? Because we believe baptism is not our profession of faith, but a gift of forgiveness given to us by God. And we believe that all ages, all people, whether you were just born or you're 106, we all need faith and forgiveness. And since God is the giver of that, we want children to have it too. What does this mean if you grow up as an adult and you reject faith? Well, when I, well, I didn't give birth to my kids. When I was present while my wife gave birth to my kids, that was the start of a journey for them, but it was not the end. If after she gave birth, we then said, now that you're born, figure it out on your own, they would probably have starved and died by now. Instead, we cared for and nurtured and loved them that they could grow up into maturity. And we believe baptism is very similar. It is the beginning of a journey and not the end of the journey. And so if you have been baptized and you walked away from God and you're wrestling with, do I need to be baptized again? Does God still love me? The really easy answer is the very fact that you're asking that question is proof that what he began in you all those years ago is still working even if you don't yet see the full fruit. And if you or someone you know and love has totally rejected God and walked away from all of it, well, every one of us can be starved in our faith and be malnourished and die. And so what do we do with people who have been baptized and have rejected and walked away from God? We love them all the more and we encourage them and we show them God's goodness and hope that the very work he began all those years ago would one day again bear fruit in them. And all we do is just keep loving them in the journey. Okay. Well, your phone closed on me, but I do know that I remember the last question. Do you need question. me to reopen it? I remember the last question. That's what happens the, when you share phones. Yeah. Uh, the last question was, empty cup anytime this year? Are we oh, doing anything there? Are we doing anything at the empty cup this year? Uh, no, not yet. If you have been here for a while, you know, before God gave us this building to meet in and we were portable, we would often do Advent services and other things at the Empty Cup, a coffee shop on the other side of town that supports foster care and adoption. Uh, Since we've had this building, we haven't needed to go to other places like that, though it's always good to get out of this place and into the community in different ways. So we've not planned anything at the Empty Cup, but if you would like a good cup of coffee and great conversation, stop on by. 
they're off of Cedar Bluff, just a little bit to the east on Executive Park Drive. So, uh, yeah, if that was it, well, I took my phone. So that was that must everything. Be you don't have any options. That was everything I saw. Awesome. Well, before we go, I have one last thing for you. And it's kind of a, actually, it's really a, a sad thing and a wonderful thing both at the same time. For over the last year, uh, many of you have gotten to know and love Adam and Amber and their family quite a bit because Adam has been pursuing seminary uh, and becoming a pastor. And in this class that he uh, is just about to finish up, one of the things they emphasize quite a bit is what we call vocations or those various roles that God has given to you to love and to serve faithfully. And as he was learning these things and wrestling with these things, one of the things that came to his heart and his mind and Amber's as well was that this pursuit of seminary was actually taking away from his ability to be present with his kids and his wife. And so I have the sad news to share with you and also the joyful news to share with you that Adam has decided to withdraw from that seminary program and will no longer be pursuing becoming a pastor here at the point. And that's really sad because I know if you're anything like me, he's been a big blessing. And I would encourage you before they leave and before you leave today to share some words of encouragement for how much they've blessed you in the last year. It's also a really good thing because it means Adam gets to be present with his kids and his wife way more often and gets to give them so much more love that he's wanted to pour out on them in the last season. And school has kept him from that. So as we speak this blessing that I always speak over all of you and it's for all of you, I'm gonna aim it for you guys today. I want you to know this in this journey and whatever comes next. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. I love you guys. Thank you and have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.